In 2017, Dr. Lee Floria of the Indiana Geological Survey reached the summit of Mount Rainier for the third time in two years. Inside an icy glacier cave perched on the rocky edge of a pool formed by fumarole steam condensation, he retrieved a data sensor placed in the water a year before. It was a long and hazardous trip, and reward for the effort was anything but certain. Who knew whether the sensor could survive such environmental extremes for so long, and what the data would reveal about the cave's hydrothermal activity and its ties to a changing climate. But then that's the nature of cave science. Risk to life and limb is real, and results can thwart expectations. In this episode, Lee and his research assistant, Sarah Asha Burgess, will take us from the top of Mount Rainier to the Mitchell Plateau in Indiana to the Caves of Kentucky as they share surprising findings from their wide-ranging cave hydrology research. Welcome to Aquapod, where guests share water monitoring stories from the field. Hi, everyone. I'm Helen Taylor with In-Situ. And I'm Adam Hobson, In-Situ's Application Development Manager for Groundwater. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lee Floria and Sarah Asha Burgess from the Indiana Geological and Water Survey. They're here to talk about their wide-ranging research on the activity and characteristics of groundwater in cave and karst formations. Lee and Sarah, welcome. Thanks very much. We appreciate this. Yeah, thank you. Great to have you here. Before we get started, let me tell everyone just a little bit about each of you. As the Assistant Director of Research, Lee coordinates the research activities of the Indiana Geological and Water Survey staff through project and editorial management. His current research focuses on carbon transport in the critical zone. Lee has been a Romania Fulbright Fellow and a USGS Mendenhall Postdoctoral Scholar. He received his PhD from the University of South Florida. Sarah currently works as a research assistant with the Indiana Geological and Water Survey, investigating the geochemistry and hydrology of the Mitchell Plateau in south-central Indiana. She has a background in both biology and geology, and is completing her master's in geology at the University of Indiana. So, Lee, when we met you uh, for the first time a few years ago, you were doing research on Mount Rainier, studying caves formed by fumaroles leaking gases beneath glaciers trapped in volcanic craters. So, please, tell us a little bit more about that project, where you ended up with it, and what's going on next with that. Sure. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it was, I think, 20, gosh, it was 2017, 2018, when we were talking about this sort of the conclusion of the last round of our summit expedition. So we started this in 2015 and 2016 and 2017. Um, and basically where we are now is sort of is at the conclusion of this phase of the research. And so uh, to sort of loop back to how you all connected with me, we had at that time an opportunity to take an Aquatrol 200 to the summit to deploy in uh, a, a lake in the cave underneath the glacier associated with fumarole melt. And so we deployed that in there. And actually at that time, we had talked with a couple techs there asking if that was the right thing to do. And they said, we've never, (laughs) we've never put that in that kind of environment. There was a worry about uh, freezing and whether freezing would burst the bosometer temperature and altitude effects and how that might uh, uh, affect its functionality. And we kind of put it in the water in this lake a couple meters underneath the surface and kind of wished it luck and came back a year later. Uh, luckily, it was intact. And and for several days on the summit, we didn't know what was on there, if anything. And when I came down off the summit, downloaded, 
uh, there was a year's worth of data uh, recorded every 15 minutes on that sensor, which was really cool. And so what that has translated to now a couple of years later is a publication currently under review uh, with the Journal of Geophysical Research, and it's looking at how we can do time series analysis on that fairly robust data set on temperature, um, conductivity, and water level, and, and try to link that with fumarole temperature measurements that were being made separately, and atmospheric temperature and pressure and snowfall measurements to get an idea of how these um, systems change not just through longitudinal studies year to year, but within sort of a 15-minute time frame during the course of a single year because um, Mount Rainier Summit is not a place that you would like to be during January, February of a typical year. And so this remotely deployed SON gathering that data from a, a site that's relatively inaccessible is pretty fantastic to see. And I understand that from now, from this point going forward, um, there will be re similar or related research going on at another location. Is that right? Yeah. So in terms of where we are with, with Rainier, we would be transitioning into other types of studies. And so we're kind of in a bit of a hiatus there till we retool what we're thinking. And this is a good time for us to get that work out and published. Um, at the same time, the, the principal group involved in getting this research leverage, which is Glacier Cave Explorers out of Oregon, uh, they had been working in Mount Hood, and they had been working some in Mount Hel Helens already. And so the Mount Hood work has mostly concluded for a variety of reasons, but Mount St. Helens has really offered some new opportunities to look at a, a lot of the same processes happening on Mount St. Helens but in a much um, a warmer crater complex, right? I mean, that much more recent volcanism there. You have volcanic domes. You have the same kinds of cave systems forming in a much more recent glacial development. Um, we see a lot of the same things happening on uh, St. Helens, but they're happening at a faster pace. And so the interannual changes between like the shape and scale that the caves are is much more visible in the data that's being collected. And so now they're transitioning and thinking more about what the gas contents are, what this means in terms of temperature profiles and seasonal measurements of this. And so um, the collaborators on that project are looking to deploy more sensors like what we did in Rainier and see what, what turns out from that. Can you give us any kind of glimpse of what your research on Rainier may be showing, the stuff that you're going to be publishing on? Yeah, it seems like uh, what we have is a very sort of a, a dynamic system. It exists in a state of uh, dynamic equilibrium where the caves have been there for a long time. And long term, there are changes that you are probably seeing in scale and scope. Um, and that's related to you know, climate forcing, what's happening in the external climate, but also the heat flux that's coming out from the volcano. But those are like decadal scale changes. From like one year to the next, what's really cool is that these data show that there are annual cyclicities, which they're also starting to see at St. Helens, between a summer versus winter profile of the cave. If you can imagine that you're at 14,000 feet and you have a steam vent that's keeping the, the entrances melted open and advecting that steam and volcanic gases outside of the edge of this 
this bulk, or this uh, glacial plug in the crater. And that's really, you know, that's well and good during the summertime where you have this balance between heat flux and a temperature on the outside. In the wintertime, when you have January through March, when the most snowfall happens in that environment, that snowfall accumulates and plugs up those cave entrances. And so now you've trapped that heat that's coming out of the vents and it starts building up and you enlarge the caves. And then you have that circulation of moist, warm air inside that melts back out those entrances, opening those, those entrances back up and then allowing that to equilibrate back to the atmosphere. So there seems to be this annual cyclicity between being an open cave to the environment and heat flux out and then being sealed like a small pressure cooker, if you will. And then that remelting those entrances back open and then, returning to a state of equilibrium so and like i said it seems like they're seeing some of those same processes on mount st helens the data has just not been accumulated to show that yet so lee does the data have any implications for predicting future volcanic activity that's a really good question and so some of the initial part of the research was thinking more along those lines right so the, the what i'm talking to you about was just sort of an incidental like we deployed that instrument not knowing what we would find Part of the guiding research was to look more at if understanding the caves could help us more understand more about volcanic hazards for the Park Service, since Mount Rainier is exceptionally, uh, it's well known, you know, to have um, the potential to be a, vol- a major volcanic event in that region. But in terms of predictive capabilities, I mean, we mostly look at things such as changes in, in the, the volcanic edifice and earthquake. Um, processes that are going on in and around that volcanic edifice. And we thought maybe that these uh, glacial plugs and glacier caves might be able to help add to that. Um, So, I mean, in short, I don't think that our data really reveal much with regards to the volcanic hazards in that short term, right? Because we're looking simply at a melt-thaw cycle within that glacial plug But now imagine this is something that we put in a, you know, some of the the papers that we've been working on. Imagine if you melt off that volcanic plug, either through changes in heat flux or changes in climate, then that changes sort of the hydrology of that summit volcanic system, which does play into sort of the volcanic activity that's going on. And so in the shortest of terms, this data doesn't really reveal much with the volcanic hazards, but it does really help us understand that summit hydrology, which gets to things such as um, weathering of the the volcanic edifice and potential slope failures in the longer term uh, that might play into hazard modeling for for the Rainier region. Great. Really interesting work in an extraordinary location. And anyone who's listening, if you would like to uh, dig a little deeper into that on our website, situ.com. We have uh, a success story and a longer case study all about um, Lee's uh, multiple journey- journeys to uh, the summit of Mount Rainier. It was really a, a terrific story and uh, interesting to hear about. As a final thought here to uh, remind, as I'm sure that everybody's aware that, you know, my role in this is one of many, and this is a multinational Multi, multi-investigator uh, project that not only, as you mentioned, this is a, an extraordinary feat getting not just me to the summit, but all of the people, the gear, 
and to basically stay and camp on a summit for a week at a time to be able to accumulate this unique data. And so shout out to all of those people who served as porters uh, to help get the gear up and down. Um, so that's that. And with regards to the publications, these will all be out there in the public sphere to look at down the road. Um, it, given the way that scientific publishing happens, you know, probably not by the end of 2020, but by the end of 2021, look for more than one article related to this research out in uh, scientific journals. Great. Well, we also understand that you're currently using that same equipment uh, or some of it that you used up on uh, on the mountain in a, another intriguing and challenging setting. And we are going to get to that. But before we do, uh, Sarah, I'd like to turn to you and have you tell us a little bit about your current um, project on the Mitchell Plateau in Indiana. Sure. So it's kind of my project, but of course, it's also kind of Lee's project. He's the person who actually wrote the grant and got the money to do it. So, All right. Acknowledged. Was- <laughs> <laughs> Don't but- let her underplay her efforts here. She also applied for and got several grants of her own. Too, there you so. go. Well, and I, I do all the field work. So, <laughs> um, that, and that's really what it comes down to as far as differences in study design is the Mitchell Plateau is a much more accessible environment. It's an area of Indiana that is characterized by extensive karst development and has historically been studied and is one of the really foundational places in the United States for cave and karst studies. Um, but it's really interesting how the water works there and how it's really controlled the way that our societies in the Midwest have formed around accessible water sources like springs that come out of the car systems. And what we do is we have, again, these continuous monitoring data songs that take measurements every 15 minutes on characteristics like dissolved oxygen, temperature, pH, specific conductivity. But also because we can actually go to the sites in a repeatable way, we can supplement that with really robust groundwater sampling that I carry out every two weeks and have done so for the past year and a half and will finish out through the end of 2020. Um, And what those groundwater samples give us is a really in-depth look at the isotopic characteristics of the water. So that lets you see the different fractions of heavy and light carbon, sulfur, and nitrogen. And we can back out from that. I guess we don't really look at the nitrogen isotopes. Not right now. We were going to. We tried. (laughs) (laughs) But we can look at the different isotopic fractionations of heavy and light carbon and sulfur. And from that, back out the different sources that they're coming from and better understand what and where is chemical constituents being contributed to in the water that people are drinking and using. So Sarah, tell me a little bit about the monitoring locations. So we have four monitoring locations currently in our little network in Indiana. And one of them is at a sinking stream, which is a, an area where water runs across as a normal surface stream before it dumps off spontaneously into the ground at a sinkhole and flows into the total karst system. Um, We're also monitoring at two karst windows that are, you could think of them as caves, and one of them actually is, but the other site at Wesley Chapel Gulf 
is actually a collapsed cave called a, well, a gulf. And that's where the walls of the cave and the ceiling of the cave have washed out into a massive horseshoe. And you can actually see that from Google Earth as a big horseshoe arena looking thing on the topography. Um, I mentioned that there's an actual cave that we're sampling from, and that's Blue Spring Caverns, which is a tourist cave. And Art Palmer wrote about Blue Spring Caverns back in the day, and it became the type example for Epicarse development as how caves form in the Midwest, largely. Um, and then our final site is a location of output at Orangeville Rise, which is the second largest spring in the state of Indiana. And it comes out of the Lost River system, but is also interestingly networked up into caves northeast of there. And it just as a, a follow-up for people who are interested, um, the Lost River itself, which is the largest sinking stream in Indiana, is a massive recharge area that is principally underground. Um, and it's very famous for having these losing streams into the subterranean karst network. And so kind of what we're doing is we're taking Flood Creek, Wesley Chapel Gulf, and Orangeville Rise as sites of input, throughput, and output of the car system. And that kind of gives us a look into the groundwater chemistry of the Lost River Karst Basin, which as Lee mentioned, is quite large. It's about 140 square miles. Um, and then right directly to the west of there is the Blue Springs Karst Basin. So they're not actually draining to the same outlets, other than the fact that it all runs down to the Mississippi eventually. Um, but the idea is that we can look at them comparatively because the Blue Springs Karst Basin is primarily forested land and the Lost River Karst Basin is primarily agricultural. So we can kind of look at the different effects that that land usage component has in how the water chemistry is looking. So tell me, what water quality parameters are you measuring? So as Sarah mentioned, we have these four sites in this network and two of the sites actually have the instrumentation for the continuous monitoring. Blue Springs is, um, is connected enough to the outside world with cell phone signal that we're using a, uh, a in-situ cube to be able to transmit that data to the HydroView cloud and then download the data. And so at that site, we have an Aquatrol 600 in the, in the cave, which that's a story for a different day, how we got it down in there. But, um, involving using their vent tube for their portalette in the cave. But that's a, <laughs> the, uh, we got it into the water at the boat dock and um, that's measuring sort of your standard suite of pH, conductivity, oxygen, um, turbidity, uh, temperature, and, and water level. So those are the, the, the things that we're getting from that sensor. We have that, that song. From Orangeville Rise, we have basically the equivalent setup Bond wise, but because it's out on the other side of a hill with no cell phone signal and tree cover, we weren't able to hook it up to um, a, a cube system to transmit the data that way. Um, so it's basically on a visit and download and calibrate type of, of setup for that site. So the those are the two that we have monitored uh, with uh, continuous monitoring. And then the other two sites, plus the two that I just mentioned, are where we're collecting the discrete samples every two weeks, which Sarah referenced earlier. Yeah, so when we do the discrete sampling, we take water samples, both filtered and unfiltered, which requires carrying about 60 pounds of equipment through wherever it takes us in Indiana. Um, 
And then we can do various lab analyses. We look at the nutrient suites on it. So um, nitrogen speciation and orthophosphates are big ones that we care about for kind of baseline indicators of drinking water quality, um, along with turbidity, which tells you how much suspended sediment is in the water itself. Um, trying to think of, okay, sulfate. <laughs> uh, we also measure sulfate. Um, and then we can look at the metal sweets that the water has inside of it too. And that is primarily iron. We do total iron because the speciation is a little difficult to nail down. Um, we don't look at lead. We, you could just say it. Goodness. <laughs> you don't need to any notes. Calcium, magnesium, put that away. Um, <laughs> calcium, magnesium, manganese, iron. Am I missing any? Oh, no, those are the principal okay, ones. Okay, those are the at. principal ones. Right. And a lot of this, so when when Sarah goes out from the field and comes back, um, it's, you know, a cooler full of bottles. And it literally is a cooler full of bottles that comes back. And each site, I didn't forget exactly how many, it's like nine, seven, nine, nine, nine now bottles per site that's involved. Uh, and it's, it's, I mean, it's fun if you're, if you're into this sort of like a little bit of an investigative MacGyver game here, like, okay, what are we going to get out of this? And so... We have like a liter of water that we, we can basically filter out the sediments so that we know how much sediment's in there, but then we can use that filtered water and we put a barium chloride in there and then we can know how much sulfate is in there and precipitate out this uh, precipitate that then you can dry out and then burn in a combustion module to know what the isotopic ratio of the, the sulfate. So it's basically what game can you play to get the number of results out of the water that you've collected? Some of them require very specific analytical procedures for preservation, right? So like your, your metal sweets, like your calciums and magnesiums, you have to preserve uh, with nitric acid to keep those, um, keep those uh, preserved in the field and in the lab before analysis. Um, other others, organic carbon. Organic so we, carbon. Yeah. We preserve our organic carbon with hydrochloric acid because if we use the nitric acid, then it'll throw off the nitrogen to carbon ratio in the water. Yep. And we actually use that as an indicator of how much, what do you call it? Labile, how labile the carbon is, mm -hmm. which yeah. is related to how easily it mobilizes, which is related to where it's coming from. Yeah. Which how again, long it's been in the field. Mm -hmm. It's really the idea that we're trying to get at is how much of what is coming from where. So what are you finding? So it's interesting because when we started, well, I was really interested in this kind of land use interaction right. aspect and how is this going to affect the people and how is what the people are doing affecting their water. And those things still are vitally important. Well, it's what we're doing, yeah. but, but it took a different direction because I thought it would be about the nutrients and the carbon in a really direct way. And it's a lot more subtle than that because what I started finding when I was going out and doing this field work all the time and building the connections with people was that they're noticing things that we never even thought to look for. And one of the really striking memories is like going out and buying vegetables at the Amish food stand in, you know, middle of nowhere or Orleans, Indiana, and just telling them kind of what I'm doing. And, oh yeah, I go out and sample the water and, you know, have you ever noticed a weird smell around here? And they're like, oh yeah, we've got a sulfur well in the back. I'm like, you do? You have a sulfur well? And so basically what happened is, you know, 40 years ago, they had a well drilled and it perched into some 
really nasty water and the water has a really high amount of sulfur, but not just like sulfates, but hydrogen sulfide. And that's that kind of gaseous rotten egg smell that you get. Um, and the fact that they actually knew that that's what it was is amazing to me. And the community really is affected by these things. And in Lost River, particularly, there's a lot of flooding hazards and risks because of the way that water drains through the underground and it's not the same as on the surface. And what's really interesting, and this is something that we've kind of figured out through the geochemistry is at Lost River, the water runs along from the sinking streams up in the headwaters uh, down through the cave at Wesley Chapel Gulf. And then what, by the time it reemerges at Orangeville Rise, some portion of that water has dropped hundreds of feet below the surface and is interacting with gypsum beds. And at those gypsum beds, it dissolves it and then takes the sulfur back up to the surface. And it's just really cool because we never ever would have known that that was happening so broadly if it weren't for the community involvement and had a better idea of how it could be fit into their lives and then reconstructed back to the science. Well, and so if I might add here, because one thing that's really good working with Sarah is that because of her biology background, she brings things to the table that sometimes I don't quite think of. Like, so the fact that there is sulfur in the water at Orangeville Rise has been known for quite a long time. And in fact, that was one of the intriguing things that we thought, well, where is it coming from? Can we track this back? Can we understand how? Learning that the Amish communities were finding that in their shallow wells is interesting. It's very interesting. And through that and recognizing that uh, it, it, if you have sulfate in the water, you likely, because of biological processes, have sulfide in the water, I kind of dismissed it because I never smelled it at Orangeville Rise. But Sarah's like, I know it's there. I know it's there. It has to be there. And I'm like, but you never smell it. She's like, you don't have to smell it for it to be there because it can be in lower concentrations. And by the times it gets to the surface, it degasses and you lose all of it. So she grabbed the portable kit drove out there to collect her samples, scrambled down the hillside, and lo and behold, there is sulfide in the water there. It's just low enough concentration and high enough flux of water to you just, you don't notice it, but it's there. And so she's in the process of sort of distilling out a sample of that sulfide to make sure that it connects through these biological processes backing to the, the gypsum beds from which the suspected origin is. But there's a, another really cool thing that comes out of that, and that's what this kind of sulfur story is. Once we realized that there was hydrogen sulfide in the water, we realized that it had to be part of the cave development. Yep. And that was not something that really was well understood in the area at all. Yep. And it's something that Lee had kind of started doing in Kentucky. And we thought that we would see it in maybe a very subtle way in Indiana, but not really. Yeah. But it's happening. And the reason is because this method of epigenesis um, that Art Palmer came up with back in the day at Blue Spring Caverns is the idea that you have carbonic acid formed from CO2 in the atmosphere and percolating through with rainwater, and that dissolves the limestone. But when you have hydrogen sulfide, you have sulfuric acid, and that dissolves the limestone even faster, even more effectively. And you can actually see a difference in the isotopic signature that comes out of the carbon from water that has been dissolved 
with carbonic acid versus sulfuric acid. Yeah. So just to give a bit of a, a sort of framework of where a lot of that comes from. So, you know, you think caves and typically people think two caves in their mind. They see two. They, one, they see Mammoth Cave. And then people out west see Carlsbad Caverns, right? So those are like the in members of what people think about when they think cave. So Lee, describe what, describe both of those caves. What 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 what, what to right. someone who's not hasn't seen them? What do they look like? Right, and so like, and that's that. This that's exactly the thing is that the people who think Mammoth Cave when they think cave, they think these stacked levels of passages that you can walk through for miles, and that there there are rivers that are flowing underground from one place to the other. And in many ways, that's kind of correct, right? The water is going in these sinking streams and flowing out to a spring that might be miles away. And through time, you know, the landscape kind of cuts its way down and you create new layers and new levels and those caves develop. And that's that epigenetic sort of system that forms from the interaction of rainwaters and soils through the bedrock from the place that it goes into the springs that it comes out. Carlsbad Caverns is nothing like that. In fact, back in the 1930s, um, there was a debate about uh, that was uh, by William Morris Davis about the origin of places like Carlsbad and how that might link to the land surface. And the and J. Harlan Bretz followed up with that in the 50s. And the thing is, is they tried to make Carlsbad Caverns Mammoth Cave. They tried to put you know a circle peg in a square hole because, as it turns out. Carlsbad Caverns formed nothing like that. When you look at these signatures of isotopes and other things that come out of like the gypsum and, and Carlsbad Caverns and Lechaguea Cave, which is in Carlsbad Caverns National Park, the end result is that you see that that's not the result of rainwater percolation at all. It's the result of processes of deep fluids that are moving, that are carrying sulfur-rich brines that go through this biologic redox that creates hydrogen sulfide and sulfuric acid that dissolves the rock. And that means that the style of cave looks very different. No longer do you get flowing rivers underground and stacked levels that are related to landscape change. You get these systems that form more from the bottom up as these uh, deep circulations of fluid move from places of like petroleum reservoirs, like in the Yates field and off in the artesian basins, near Carlsbad in Midland, Texas, and then through up into the Capitan Reef at Carlsbad Caverns, where you get those processes now uh, cycling that sulfur and then dissolving the rock. And that's a very different kind of scenario than we see at Mammoth Cave. So what Sarah was indicating is absolutely stunning that you may not see it. It may still look like a Mammoth Cave. You may still have a river flowing underground, but some component of that's there because of the sulfur. Well, and that gets us to this idea of polygenesis, where in the Mitchell Plateau, what we're actually discovering is it's not just this classic epigenetic karst model. It's not. That's not what the numbers show. It's coming from this polygenetic source where it's a mix of carbonic acid and sulfuric acid that are forming the caves. Right. And so now I'm going to, I'm going to plug her one here so that she can tell a story because kind of connected to knowing the people and talking to the people. (laughs) um, If, if you're out in the field working and talking, you learn some really interesting things. So blue spring caverns where the site is that, um, that one of our monitoring sites is looks like just, 
you know, it's a, it's a 20 plus mile cave system with all these networks of little drainages and tributaries that join into this main, uh, main trunk river passage that they have this boat tour on. Um, if you talk to Art Palmer and you, he talks about how it formed, he has this model and it makes a lot of sense how it formed. And generally speaking, that's still true. But then, then you talk to one of the guides. <laughs> yeah. So, um, shout outs to AJ Horan and Nick Kaufman, who work at Blue Spring Caverns as managers for the tours. Um, AJ is actually the caretaker. But anyways, there are these really goofy layback folks that help me get my water samples when I need a hand. So one, one day when I had a really, really long, bad day, they drove the golf cart into the cave to pick me up with all the equipment. Um, and they're just, they're just fun to talk to. And I remember I was trying to tell them, you know, I know that there's this hydrogen sulfide component. I know that it's there. And they don't have that sort of academic background. But Nick just looks at me and he goes, oh, yeah, I've seen sulfur seeds back there. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, that black pool, that black pool of sulfur. And AJ's like, nah, man, that's poop. (laughs) 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 No, it's a sulfur And AJ's like, I have smelled that. It smells like poop. (laughs) And you're both right. <laughs> They're both right. So anyways, I convince them to take me back there to let me touch it. And I stick my hand inside and I go, oh, no, this is really weird. And Lee actually came back with me. And the specific conductivity was through the roof. It was like 1,800 microsiemens per centimeter. And the reason is because it has all this dissolved calcium and magnesium and sulfur in it. And it's amazing because Nick Kaufman at Blue Spring Caverns discovered something that no one in academia ever, ever did. And it's that there are sulfur seeps. Why are you doing that? I'm I'm looking for something. Keep talking. It's that there are sulfur seeps (laughs) in this epigenetic cave that is suddenly not so epigenetic. That's really cool stuff, by the way. This is, this is pretty amazing. So um, coming back to the concept of, you know, whether it's carbonic acid or sulfuric acid, and then looking at the chemistry that's involved in there, um, given my limited geochemistry background, I imagine that's going to have, can kind of tell you a little something about the weathering environment and maybe have some implications for that. Yes, it most certainly does. And so this sort of links into the, you know, the bigger picture, um, of what in my mind, much of this research is about. So, you know, we can move from the the individual and the community and the, and the landscape and start thinking about sort of the more global implications and what that might mean. Because if you look at the two end members of the spectrum, or there's like, let's say there's four end members to the spectrum of caves and cars. You have caves that are formed in young rocks, caves that are formed in old rocks. So think like Bahamas versus Kentucky. And then on the other side, the chemical side of it, you have caves that are formed by this epigenetic circulation of meteoric waters and caves that are formed from deep fluid migration and things such as sulfur redox. And so those are four like in members of a, a square that you can start saying, well, what about caves that are in young limestones that are influenced by sulfur? And what about caves, old rocks that are influenced by carbonic acid and meteoric circulation? And as you start building up this bigger picture of what the, the, the pattern of cave formation is like across the globe. 
what most people have pictured through time is those end members to the spectrum, right? On both ways. So when I lived in Florida, I looked at the old versus young rock side of it. And many people have looked at the, you know, Mammoth Cave, Carlsbad end members of the spectrum, like what I had mentioned. But now what we're seeing is that like with a lot of things in life, there are not just two end members. There's a lot of stuff in between. And so if you look at a landscape like the Mitchell Plateau and you say that uh, we have this amount of water that's moving through there, that water is carrying X amount of solutes. So like, you know, 100 milligrams per liter of calcium. And you know there are that many liters of water per second that move through that aquifer, then you can do a back of the envelope calculation on how many milligrams of calcium there were per second moving through that system based upon combining these discrete data and these continuous monitoring data through things like rating curves. And then you can use that to be able to get an estimate of flux. And that estimate of flux is an important component of understanding global climate model, specifically with respect to karst because truly cave and karst landscapes are nothing but understanding how carbon is mobilized from the time that it formed the rock to the time that that rock went away. Well, and that's because, if I might just jump in, limestone, which makes up these karst landscapes, is made out of calcite. And calcite is made out of calcium and carbonate, which is, of course, made from carbon. Right. And so for every mole of calcium that you have moving through the water, you have a mole of carbon. Right. And that's really, that's that way you can do a lot of really good calculations on how much carbon is mobilized and how it's moving. Now, here's the big implication of that. If we think that everything in Indiana and Kentucky which we can talk about more later, if we think about all of that as simply the movement of meteoric water and atmospheric and soil carbon dissolving limestone and moving that all out of the spring into the river and from the river to the sea, then that is, you can do as a straightforward calculation. Now, it, there's a lot of steps involved and some estimates, but the calculation itself is pretty straightforward. You can do similar sorts of things if you think of a system like Carlsbad and the dissolution of carbonate in that. But now what happens if you have some hybrid that's in between? And what happens if that hybridization changes through time so that the amount of sulfur engaged and involved in that system changes through time? How do you get your global carbon flux model correct? Because limestone accounts for a major part of the Earth's ice-free surface and there's a lot of water moving through these landscapes, and there's a lot of carbon that's coming out of them. And that is one of the components that goes into global climate models. And so making sure that we get this right is really pretty important. So staying big picture, what do you think you're seeing in your research at the Mitchell Plateau? So when, when you kind of look at this as a whole, and you know, as I was talking about with regards to the sulfur, it's very clear that you have two adjacent systems that behave similarly hydrologically, but they have a very different chemical signature. And that chemical signature seems to come from a difference in the sourcing of the gypsum, which we don't have a real clear picture on yet, but it's, it's most certainly related to the gypsum at depth and also these other mineral phases and brines that might be getting into the system, which gives that a very different signature. 
And then if you backtrack that, that changes as a result of what the stage of water is. So that's really important for us to get this continuous monitoring data and the discrete data, because that's the only way that we can really elucidate this out. So that's how we got to this place in Indiana, which was, we thought there would be interesting data there, not quite this way, and this is really cool, but this came from the fact that more than a decade ago, I was looking at some of these same kinds of questions in, in Kentucky, and what we found there using the same strategy of continuous monitoring and discrete sampling is that sulfur had an influence, which was really cool because we didn't see the sulfur in the cave. And as Sarah mentioned, you know, with the caretakers and the, the other guides at the site, they saw sulfur in Blue Spring Caverns, which we did not know, nor did anybody else really think of that. They never asked. They never asked. And so now it's there, which we didn't expect to find. And in Kentucky, I knew it was probably there, but didn't see it. <laughs> in this place that I studied. And so what was really cool about that is we have these petroleum seats in creeks. You could see them, and they were, but they were at the surface and as the result of these improperly cased oil wells and some natural leakage through fractures. But I didn't see it in the cave, except in tiniest of circumstances. But when we did the work in Kentucky back a decade ago, which we published um, several years back, is that when you run through the model, and try to tease out what carbon comes from where and what that means in terms of the process to create that carbonate aquifer cave system is that roughly 20, 28% of the carbon that was coming out of that spring here in Kentucky could be explained by sulfur-based uh, dissolution of the limestone, which was massively large compared to where I thought it might be. Now, on that same creek, we noted all of these sulfur seeps not in a cave. And so we thought, okay, there's something going on here. And when you look at the geologic map, there is an anticline. And that anticline has long been known. And, you know, petroleum geologists long know that anticlines function as petroleum traps. And there are lots of old, old, I mean, 100-year-old-plus oil wells that no longer pr produce there. And so what was going on at that time for them to throw in a couple thousand oil wells around focused in this area? So that got, it gets us to like more cave exploration and looking for sites where we might be able to find this phenomenon. We know of a cave nearby that actually has globs of oil coming through it. But those globs of oil we thought were the result of improperly cased oil wells and not this sort of natural phenomena that we we're hoping to find. And as I said, I did find sites where you had like a one foot square foot patch of oil leaking out and this dissolution happening, but that's one square foot. What does that mean? Like when you scale that up to several square miles of land surface and we didn't have a site until recently. And that takes us to about the mid-2000s when some cavers were out and found some steam blowing out of a fracture on top of a mountain, and they enlarged it and discovered a pretty big vertical shaft going into a cave system that was only briefly explored back around 2008 to 2012, uh, about the first half mile of that. And then that project sat idle for about another six years before a newer team of people got into the cave 
and started really pushing that and found some really incredible stuff, which links us back into Sarah. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Please join us for part two of this conversation with cave hydrology researchers, Dr. Lee Floria and Sarah Asha Burgess. Lee and Sarah, thank you so much. We're excited to continue this conversation and discover what your weekend warrior research in the caves of Kentucky has revealed. Please subscribe to Aquapod wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out at insitu.com. That's in-situ.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Adam Hobson, and Lauren Ryan, with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field. And until then, take care out there.